0: Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 9. And we will be reading verses 1 through 18. Again, I invite you to turn in your Bibles and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired Word. I speak the truth in Christ... I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, And the promises, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's Word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are His descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, and yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy, and He hardens whom He wants to harden. And herein ends the reading of God's Word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him, and to Him alone. Amen. We come today to a shift in focus for the Apostle Paul after reaching the glorious climax of the theological presentation of God's plan for the salvation of mankind. And in light of all that he has said so far, there arises an issue that cannot be ignored. What do we do with the Jews? After all, God chose the Jews, did he not? In the world of nations, the Jews held a special status in terms of their relationship to God that appears to have ended in complete failure. So what does their rejection of the Messiah say about God's ability to, quote-unquote, save anyone? And Paul realizes that there seems to be an apparent contradiction that needs to be addressed, and so... Over the next three chapters, he provides a divine perspective as to what has transpired in the history of his people. But as we will learn over these three chapters, the issue of the Jews is not so unique. And the first thing Paul does is to open his heart to the brothers in Rome, and he openly grieves before them. He indicates that his sorrow is deep and his heart is absolutely broken for these who are his kinsmen according to the flesh because they continue to reject the Christ on a nearly universal scale. They aren't simply apathetic to the gospel of Christ. They are openly antagonistic to it, many of them working hard to crush it in its infancy as a religious aberration unworthy of anyone's consideration. Now, anyone who has relatives who are entrenched in their rejection of the Lord Jesus knows the sorrow that it creates within the heart when you contemplate their eternal destiny. Because you know something of the eternality of God's judgment, it kills you to think of them suffering that way even though they may be antagonistic towards you because of the joy that you have found in Christ. Your love for them is such that you pray unceasingly for them and you still look for opportunities to share with them, hoping that God will open their ears to hear and they will come to a point of surrender to Christ Jesus. The sorrow you feel is real. The anguish is genuine. And for any disciple of Christ, this is how it will be, for it reflects Jesus' heart as well. Think of that moment in Matthew's Gospel. Following Jesus' triumphal entry, he has cleansed the temple. He's been teaching and arguing with the religious authorities for a couple of days. And he reaches the point where he says in the temple, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And then he says, see, your house is left to you desolate. And then he walks out of the temple. And it would be just a few more hours when the religious authorities would see to it that their Messiah was nailed to a tree and their collective rejection of the Christ would be so firmly established that Jesus' closing words to them there would be rightly understood. For as he was leaving, he said, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord. And this is how it will be for all those who reject Christ in this life. They will be in darkness until the judgment, when it will become crystal clear to them then, when they see Him in all His glory arriving on the clouds with the heavenly host in His trail, that they had every opportunity to surrender to Christ, but they chose to reject Him. And Paul's anguish over his kinsmen according to the flesh is so great that if it would be possible for him to trade places with them, he would. But he knows that's not possible any more than it was possible for Moses to atone for the sins of the people of his day by having his own name removed from God's book of life. And what adds to Paul's anguish Is when he considers the innumerable advantages that were given to his people alone. He says, To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. So, if ever there were a people on the face of the earth who should have been among the first to recognize the Christ, it was his people particularly when you consider that by God's grace and design, the Messiah, according to the flesh, also came from among them. Born of a virgin, according to prophecy, in the city of David, announced by the voice of one crying in the wilderness in the person of John the Baptist, attested to by signs and wonders from heaven, teaching with an uncommon authority, faultless in all of his ways, overcoming death and the grave after three days as he predicted, Paul knows better than most that of all people they should have seen it clearly, but they chose not to do so. They even sought to cover up the resurrection. So how could this be? What explanation is there for the blindness of the Jews of Jesus' day? Some saw it. We are told that at Pentecost, there were approximately 120 disciples gathered in the upper room awaiting the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And thankfully, there were others who came to believe that day as 3,000 souls were added. And in the days that followed, there were many others who came to faith. But as they increased in number, so did the animosity towards them from their fellow Jews. And by the time we come to chapter 6 in the book of Acts, the deacon Stephen is arrested and brought to the council on fabricated charges. And his unsanctioned execution caused the church to scatter abroad. And wherever Paul went on his missionary journeys, the greatest resistance he encountered came largely from the Jews who stirred up trouble against him and his associates. So again, how do we explain the spiritual blindness? Well, Paul begins to answer that question by immediately declaring that it is not because of any failure on God's part. He says it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Now, we need to use a bit of caution here as we try to understand what he means, because Paul is basically referring to the entirety of the promises that God made beginning in Genesis 3.15 when he promised Adam and Eve that one day a Savior would come who would overcome the damning predicament that their sin had caused. From that promise and all the promises that followed, there was no failure on God's part. Human beings failed, repeatedly. Prophets, priests, and kings failed. The nation failed. But it was not because the promises of God failed. And to establish that point, Paul indicates that the issue has to do with the perspective that people have as opposed to the perspective that God has. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now we will not take time to explore the familiar story of Sarah and Abraham for hopefully, hopefully it is fresh enough in your memories to realize that Abraham was promised a son with Sarah, even though they were quite elderly by the time that promise was first given. Abraham was 75 when the promise came, and Sarah was 10 years his junior, already well beyond natural childbearing years. But to demonstrate the power and glory of God, the promise did not come to fruition until they had waited an additional 25 years. But in the meanwhile, when they grew impatient, Sarah suggested to Abraham that perhaps God's promise would be fulfilled by Abraham having a child through a physical union with Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. And in the world of secular wisdom, that made sense to him, and Ishmael was the result. But God cleared up their confusion later by saying, no, 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 I meant what I said. You and Sarah will have a son. His name will be Isaac. Now I bring that up because in essence, Paul brings it up. He says in verses 6 and 7, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, Paul is saying a couple of things here. The first is this. Just because the Jews could trace their biological heritage back to Abraham proved nothing because the descendants of Ishmael could make that same claim. As could the descendants of Esau. But there was not a single Jewish person who would have thought that the promises of God were directed towards those descendants of Abraham. And yet that was the very thing to which they appealed. Do you remember from our walk through the Gospel according to John a year ago, that moment when Jesus spoke to the Jews about their understanding of what Paul is addressing here, and Jesus said to them, I know that you are offspring of Abraham and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you've learned from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now the distinction between being an offspring of Abraham and being a child of Of promise of Abraham is a distinction with a significant difference. And it is to this distinction that Paul is appealing with his second point. He is saying that even the descendants of Abraham, who came through Isaac and then through Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, they are not considered to be the true children of Abraham. Because to be a true child of Abraham is not about biology or genealogy. It is by God's grace expressed in his sovereign choice. And to make this case, Paul points to these two pregnancies of two matriarchs who had fertility issues. One whose childbearing years were long past, Sarah, and another, Rebecca, whose own fertility issues were resolved by God with the pregnancy involving twins and God freely choosing the younger twin to be the line through which the promised Messiah would eventually arrive. The promises that God made were not violated by God, but they were misunderstood by men. The promises of God were not unkept But they were misinterpreted by men whose sinful motivations caused them to be blind to what God was doing. The Jews believed that the promises of God were reserved for them because they could trace their genealogy back to Abraham through Jacob and Isaac. But they failed to consider the sovereignty of God in all these historical developments. It wasn't Abraham who pursued God. It was God who called Abraham out of Haran, out of Ur of the Chaldees. Not because Abraham was worthy, but because God was exceedingly gracious. Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah, not because they were exceedingly fertile in their old age, but because God was sovereignly in control. Jacob did not become the favored son because he was so deceitfully clever, but because God ordained it before he was ever born. And Paul's point here is that the promises of God are extended to all those who are counted as the offspring of Abraham, not by biology, but by faith in the Word of God, which does not fail. Abraham was justified before God by faith in the promises of God. He was reckoned as righteous by faith in the Word of God. And this is how one is considered a true son or daughter of Abraham. Through faith in God. Now Paul comprehends this perhaps better than most because he was once the Jew who put his full trust and Hope in his ancestral tree, as well as his religious accomplishments. And when he writes to the Philippians, he recounts all this. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisees, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. When it came to bragging rights, Paul did not need to take a back seat to anyone. He had an impeccable Jewish resume. But that failed to benefit him in the arena of God's righteousness. From God's perspective, Paul's resume was nothing more than a fresh pile of animal dung clinging to the bottom of his shoe. Paul could not see that until by God's grace, He was sidelined with temporary blindness in the middle of his persecution of the saints. And God's grace came to him. Not because of that resume, but simply by God's choice. As God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And that is to say that God is not bound in any way. God's completely sovereign when it comes to the salvation of mankind. The Son is free to say to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. God can extend grace to Rahab, the harlot, and her family in the walled city of Jericho. God can show mercy to the people of Nineveh, use an unwilling prophet to accomplish it. God can choose Abraham over all the other citizens of Haran or Jacob over Esau or Saul over any other obstinate Jewish scholar. God alone is completely free and sovereign to choose according to the counsel of His own will. And God is equally free and sovereign and just when He passes over the rest of mankind. God is perfectly just when He condemns and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. God is perfectly just when He humiliates Pharaoh and punishes the Egyptians. God is perfectly just when He withholds His grace from individuals and entire nations. And God does not need to justify His decisions to any of us. For God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and His ways are higher than our ways. So when we are tempted to raise the question, is there injustice on God's part? We would be wise to remain silent. Paul poses that question and answers it with his now very familiar emphatic phrase, by no means. Perish the thought. Don't even consider such an idea. And yet people do, don't they? There are many who want to call God to account. They have the attitude that God has some explaining to do if God does not save every single human being. For them, to save some but not all is a violation of what it means to be God. And yet, if you press them on that idea of universalism and ask them if they want Joseph Stalin as their heavenly next-door neighbor, they'll concede, no, no. I mean, there should be divine justice in that case. But they have real difficulty when you press them further as to where to establish the line between heaven and hell. Where should that be? And if the truth be known, they have trouble establishing that line because they do not want to consider the possibility that they themselves may be Joseph Stalin's next-door neighbor in hell. And yet the truth is, that's where we all would be if God was to give us exactly what we deserve. No one deserves God's mercy. No one deserves God's grace. Remember, there is none that is righteous. No, not one. Even if we were to try really, really hard, we would still be lost because we are all guilty of Adam's sin and the wages of sin we know is death. And therefore Paul declares about our salvation, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. There is not one biblical character that we could point to that was among the redeemed that could or would ever say that they were in that spiritual position by their own effort or will. Nor will there ever be anyone outside the circle of the redeemed that will ever declare that God's responsible for their damnation. Recall what Paul wrote back in chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The reason that people attempt To hold God responsible for their eternal destiny is because they already know that if their salvation depends upon them, they will be lost forever. And yet their pride keeps them from surrendering to His sovereignty and His grace. Paul reminds his Roman brothers and sisters about Pharaoh, whom God used for His own purposes to set before the world an example of God's power and supremacy, that God's name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. And we know that it was. When the Hebrews began to enter the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, they heard the testimony of Rahab, the harlot, and she said to them, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Did God use Pharaoh for his own purposes? He did. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? He did. Was that unjust? No. The Scriptures tell us that Pharaoh was not innocent when it came to the condition of his hardened heart. We're told on more than one occasion that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And the hardening of his heart was his predisposition. As a sinner living in rebellion against God among a people who looked upon Pharaoh as a god and Pharaoh doing nothing to dissuade the people of their misconception, Pharaoh was entirely guilty of a great evil against the God of heaven. But Pharaoh wasn't only used as an example to the people of old. He stands also as an example to people today. For though God provided him with ample opportunities to repent, he repeatedly refused. The grace and loving kindness of God is such that he broadcasts throughout the world the gospel concerning his son Jesus. And the promise that is extended is that whoever comes to Jesus, he will never cast out. Beloved, if the Spirit of the Lord is speaking to your heart, calling you to surrender yourself to Christ, do not harden your heart. But realize instead that God is choosing to show you mercy and compassion by inviting you to come to Christ. And if that's where you are today, then I invite you to come even now. Would you bow your heads with me that we might pray together for a moment?